Happy Tag Tuesday. Hello, how are you? I'm good. I'm Ann Police. And I'm Denise Cooper. How are you from Europe? I am doing amazingly well. <laughs> are you eating croissant? I'm eating as much as I possibly can of everything. <laughs> I don't know why croissant is what's happening in Europe. You're not going to be in France. I'm not. I am actually no. in London. I'm actually in the UK. I'm mm-hmm. going from place to place to place, and it is spectacular. So happy to be somewhere they speak English. <laughs> well, we um, are pre-recording this. Denise isn't even there yet. She's on her way, though, and she's going to be there when this actually airs. But we have taken a little break the month of July, but we um, have our top four uh, most downloaded podcasts that we wanted to reshare with you guys. So we dusted them off and we got them right back at you. So this week is a really special one. This one was this one was recorded on the island of Kauai, and it is it is the podcast that got us into the market in India. We had no <laughs> listeners in India until we aired this podcast. Let me just tell you this. When you think about a podcast, I'm asking you this, Anne. When you think about mm-hmm. a podcast that we've done, mm-hmm. is this probably the one of your... I don't even know how to describe it. It is... There's just something about it. And I think it's because when we were at the Hindu monastery and having the ability and for Polani, who is the guru that we talked to, when we when we were there, it is something spiritually special. Mm-hmm. And so when I it's very special. When I look back on this time that we were there and sharing this with all of you, I don't know if people can really truly understand how in, how it, how special it was to us. It is such a such a departure from anything we've done, but just from sort of podcasts in general. We are uh, airing the podcast today where we interview Swami Polani, who is the number two person in, in charge, so to speak, of the Hindu monastery on the island of Kauai. It's the largest Hindu monastery outside of India. Um, we have known the gentleman up there at the monastery for a number of years. And whenever Denise comes over to Kauai, uh, we usually make a trip up there and they have new construction or they have something, you know, they've built a new temple, whatever. They're always very hospitable. Uh, The fact that I asked them to do a podcast and they said, sure, was (laughs) is still so shocking to me that I that just that alone the fact that we were able to get in there we took all our equipment over there it was quite something um we had you know luggage (laughs) that we had to roll in there you know the fact that Polani sat down with us for as long as he did he took like an almost an entire hour to just like hang out with us and talk and he I know you think that um well this is my thought you think that Oh, Hindus, you know, if you're a Swami, you're just sort of leading the life of leisure and meditation. They're not. They're running a business up there. They're, they're, they're they got making stuff. it happen. Yeah, they do. They make they're it making happen. it happen. And it's like a little beehive there, right? There's always mm-hmm. something going on. They all have a role yeah. to play. And 
they are very, very dedicated to everything they're doing. And their religion is the center of everything that they're doing. And they live and breathe their religion. And you can feel it when yeah. you go there. It's quite something. So, of course, this is this is one of our favorite interviews that we did because it was so outside the box for us. But it's also one of the most downloaded. We bring you Pihana Kalani, Where Heaven Touches Earth. We sit down with Swami Pilani for episode number 45. We hope you enjoy. Happy Tag Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. How are you today? Well, I feel marvelous. <laughs> you look marvelous. You're Thank tan. You. I know. You look rested. I feel it. I mean, I've been here for about 10 days, and I feel like the magic of Kauai has worked on me. I think it's working. It's... it's island magic upon you and your beautiful your skin's glowing that's because it has some sun um <laughs> it saw the sun, saw in, the a sun <laughs> in a real way and and you know honestly i think first of all i eat really well when i'm here lots of fruits and veggies it's one of those things where there's not a lot going on but enough for me to just recharge and re-energize so that i can leave this island feeling great mm -hmm. go back with the aloha spirit and just feel good mm -hmm. and we are pretty excited about this podcast today. We're doing a little bit different format this time. We're going to introduce our guest and then we're going to go to a, a, a pre-recorded uh, tape. How old am I? A pre-recorded version of the podcast. We packed up all our equipment and we took it up the mountain, literally into the mountains of the east side of Kauai. There is a secret, eh, it's a kind of a secret little gem hidden up there. It's a Hindu monastery. Hmm. Not a lot of people know about it in the run-of-the-mill tourist books. Well, I don't think that a, a regular tourist might not even think that it's something that would interest them. It abs You're 100% correct. I sort of had that same feeling when mm -hmm. I first learned about it. I was like, well, this As could, did I. Yeah, this could be interesting. <laughs> this could go either way. But when we went up there uh, probably 10 years ago, you can do a self-guided tour. You just walk around the grounds. You can participate in a service if you choose to. You can sit in mm -hmm. on a service. Um, and, and it's just a lovely little self-guided tour. When I got there, it was so much more than I had ever anticipated. So having said that, Denise and I were able to go up to the monastery and interview Swami Pilani. He's... Uh, a terrific interview. We were able to sit down with him for uh, an hour, about an hour and a half. He was limited on time because he's a very busy person, as you can imagine. Even though life up there at the monastery is kind of stripped down, is simplified, it's very singular in focus. But at the same time, there's still stuff that has to be done. So we had him for a very short time, but we were able to get one of the funnest conversations I've ever had with someone. You know, I told people um, when we were here last August is when we went there and um, I was going through some stuff and um, we went up there. And when I say stuff, I was having some own my own personal um, things going on and I was pretty vulnerable, I have to say. But I went up there with curious with a curious mind and an open heart just to see the have the experience because Ann and Warren had told us so much about how lovely these this place is. And it did not disappoint as far as beauty. Go there with an open heart. I did. And the thing that happened to me there was very, I, w I was not expecting it because I got very emotional there. There was something there. There's an energy there. I've since learned about vibrations <laughs> and um, really a inner, an inner 
peace that you can find there. People from all around the world and around the country, Hindus, come there and make a pilgrimage to be there and to do a service with this group of monks. And we have never done a service, but I have been on the grounds and I've been all through the grounds and I've had Polani explains specific things about the temple that they're building. It's taking them 30 years to do it. So they're doing it the old fashioned way, literally. It's the most amazing. The, the land is sacred. Mm-hmm. I think part of it is that the Hawaiian land that they're on was sacred to begin with. Correct. And then these monks bring this, they bring this energy and peace to this place. It's quite something. Yeah, it it was it was a great experience. It's always a great experience to take visitors up there to the Hindu temple and to get a chance to even if they don't meet any of the monks or the swami, just walking around that place it's it's absolutely breathtaking. You cannot believe that Kauai, the Garden Island could get any more beautiful. No. But it that it has up there at the at the at the Hindu monastery. As Denise said, they are building a new temple. It's almost done. We did not get a chance to talk to Polani about the temple because his time was limited. He's a very busy man. And we never got around to talking about the temple, which is an enormous endeavor. They've shipped everything over from India. It's all hand-carved. It's I, I, When our husbands were looking at the temple, talking to Polani about the craftsmanship of the temple, they're both in the construction industry, and neither of them could believe the type of construction that went into this temple. There's not a nail. Even the even the equipment they use, they don't use modern equipment. Mm-hmm. They use all old time, from back in the day, all of this original type of chiseling and it's mallets hand and hand done. Yeah. I mean, the reason it's taking 30 years is because they are doing it in the traditional way and everything has to be perfect. If something breaks or something is not perfect, it doesn't get fixed. It, it gets, gets tossed and right. a new piece comes in and it could be the smallest piece. It could be an inch by inch block. It could be a facade that's 30 feet wide. That thing is coming down and we're putting a new one up. It's all, it's unbelievable the craftsmanship that's gone into this temple. Well, I think when you look at a, on a spiritual side, the significance of this temple is so great that nothing but perfection can be accepted. I think that's right. I, after I left there in August, I did some research on the the monastery itself and on Hinduism. And since I've been back and forth, I've keep kind of diving a little deeper and a little deeper. Mm-hmm. It's a really beautiful religion. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, there's the concept of it are so they're so they're so enlightening for lack of a better word, and that's a word that's used a lot. But it is it is something special. I had so many more questions. Oh, I know. We only got him for like an hour I and know. a half, and we were like, "Is it over?" The founder of the monastery is Guru Deva, and he was a remarkable man. Um, and I I just there's a book that they have Mm -hmm. given us, and it's called the Guru Chronicles. It's the making of the first American monastery, basically. Mm -hmm. And there's a part in here that just struck me. It's part of the dedication of the book, and it was written by the monks themselves. And it was written about 10 years after he had passed already. He had had left this earth. Um, And it it says this, "In in this, the 10th year since his great departure, we dedicate this book to Guru Deva, an Eastern soul in a Western body, a man who loved all that is modern and used and used it to protect all that is ancient. That perfectly describes what's happening up there at the monastery. It is. It yeah. is. We bring you now our interview with Swami Pulani, 
you're going to notice a little bit of a difference in the audio quality as we were in a sort of medium-sized conference room with no you know sound barriers on the wall or anything no like acoustics. that it's it's not terrible just heads up there's a little bit of a difference in the audio but please enjoy as we sit down with pulani how long have have you been here Good question. I've been at the Kauai Monastery for, for 54 years. What brought you here originally? An airplane. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Mode of transportation was um, an airplane. I'm glad to hear that, though. We uh, came here to Hawaii in 1968 uh, on a meditation tour study program. Mm -hmm. Were you among those people who came in 1968? I was the leader of the group. Wow. Uh, the monk leader. I was a young monk at uh -huh. that time. How long had you been in the, been involved with this at that time when you came? Do you remember? About two or three years. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we, Gurudeva had me arrange a, uh, we called it Inner Search Travel Study Program. Okay. And we had done a couple in Switzerland, Ooh. and uh, he wanted to go to Hawaii. So I made arrangements to f come to Hawaii, and we uh, actually booked the Hana Ranch on the island of Maui. And just 10 days before we were to arrive, a big storm came and blew all kinds of trees over the single road. I don't know if you know Hana Ranch, but it's a, yeah. a very remote, one narrow road, road place. And, yeah. and the Hana Ranch manager called me in San Francisco and said, you can't come. The, the storm has blocked the roads and they won't be cleared for a couple of weeks. So I told Gurudeva. And he said, well... You have to do something because we have 27 people uh, who have quit their jobs and sold their guitars. This was, you know, in the flower 60s. child time mm -hmm. in the San Francisco in the late 60s. Wow. And, uh, and we can't disappoint them. So I reached out to uh, Air France executive that I knew who happened to live on this island, just down the road a couple of miles. Nico Reed was his name. I said, Nico, I have to find a place in the next 10 days to bring 27 people to Hawaii. Uh, and I told him why. And what can you advise? So he called me back a few hours later and said, you know, there's a little place just up the road from my home here on Kauai Island, different island. Uh, it's called the Tropical Inn. And I called them and they can take you on short notice. But I have to warn you that it's kind of a disheveled place. Uh, I said, I, I don't care what <laughs> shape it's in. Right. Uh, please book it now and uh, we'll arrive on this date. And, uh, and so our plans to go to Maui were changed to the Tropical Inn on Kauai. And we spent three weeks here on that inner search and fell in love with it. On our way back from India the next year, we bought it. Is this is the monastery sitting where the tropical inn was? It's the same land. You you are 
sitting in a conference room right now called the Cedar Room, but in those days, this was part of a uh, building that had three studio apartments in it. And this was a studio mm -hmm. apartment, and there was one there and one there. And when, I, when we bought the place, I was commissioned to go into these apartments, talk to the people, who, the renters who were living here, <laughs> and they all, there was hardly motorbikes in the room. Oh, no. And I had to tell them that, that they had to move out because we were moving in. <laughs> How did they take that? Well, they, they, did, they, they did well. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Now, what's an, what's an inter... You called it an inner search? Inner search. Okay, yeah. what is that? Inner search was Gurudeva's uh, marvelous program where he would take followers and seekers all around the world with him and meet all the holy people that we could wherever we were. So if we were in Japan, we would meet a, maybe a Japanese calligrapher or a Buddhist monk. Um, if we were in India, of course, the options are great because there's holy people on every corner. But I mean, even in Washington, D.C., we met uh, Mother God one day. Yes? I don't know who, what's, who's Mother God. <laughs> she was uh, famous in her time, <laughs> in her world, <laughs> not internationally. But the idea was that, that we would go with Gurudeva for usually for maybe nine or 20 days, although some of the inner searches went for three months around the world, Whoa. which was extensive. Uh, and we would meditate with him and be with him, and then we would go out and go on a river ride, or, you know, it was kind of toggling between a spiritual inner journey and a fun outer journey. And, yeah. Uh, so we did this for uh, for his whole life. We we uh, did I think uh, twenty four such wow. journeys around the world. Did I see a photo of you of that group doing an inner search in Russia? Were you in like yeah. Red Square or something? Yeah. What kind of holy people were you able to meet there? Interesting. When when we were there, uh, we we went to of all things the first Christmas to be openly held in the country of Russia for 70 years because they had they had kind of developed a culture there where they didn't publicly allow Christmas to happen and uh, but with the uh, we had a few years earlier been at a conference in Moscow where we uh, I went to my only cocktail party in my whole life with <laughs> with Gorbachev in the Kremlin. Stop it. Yes. That really, wait. <laughs> I'm not ready for you to move on. <laughs> True story. You, you were a, a, at the invitation of Gorbachev, or you were there and he was there as well? Gorbachev had been a participant at another event that we had at Oxford University mm -hmm. uh, in 1988, where we brought together, it's called the Global Forum for Human Survival. Okay. And it was the bringing together of political and spiritual leaders around the world to try to resolve some of mankind's issues. And he was so impressed with that event in Oxford that he sponsored his own event in Moscow and the, the Russian government paid for 700 political and spiritual leaders from around the world wow. to come to Moscow for 10 days. 
And uh, so we we went. Gurudeva was chosen as one of the uh, main Hindu leaders for that event. You reference Gurudeva. Am I saying that correctly? Yes. Can you tell everyone who that is? Gurudeva was my spiritual teacher, guru. Uh, he was also the founder of this monastery and the precursors to this monastery. We, had, we used to have monasteries in uh, Nevada and California, in San Francisco. And he founded all of those. And he founded the first true Hindu temple in America in 1957 in San Francisco. And uh, that's where I met him. And was he originally from India? No, no. He was, he was born in Oakland and raised in Lake Tahoe. Oh. And, uh, but then he was trained and, and initiated in Sri Lanka and India in later life. He, he was a fascinating, remarkable fellow. When he was uh, 19 years old, he was the premier danseur of the San Francisco Ballet Company. So at 19, he was the number one dancer for a, a fairly prestigious company. Quite prestigious, yes. I might say. <laughs> so that's at 19. When did he then start his journey? Well, th- that's where it gets interesting because he was there at the peak of his dancing career when he was overwhelmed with an urge to go to India and find his guru. So he walked off the stage of the San Francisco Ballet Company got on a boat, the very first merchant vessel to sail after the war, got on a boat and went to India. So he had to have been exposed to Hinduism and that before. Yes, he was. He was exposed from an early age. He was actually uh, orphaned at 11. And he was taken in by a, a, a very deeply spiritual person who had a guru from Sri Lanka. And he was, you know, taught Hindu thought and language and culture and how to wrap a turban. And uh, <laughs> he, was, he was taught Indian dance before he was taught uh, Western ballet, actually. But then he, he followed the ballet because that's, in America, that's what you do. Sure. Uh, but yes, he, he was trained from a very early age. And then had this urge to go to India, uh, which he did at age 19. Got so that, I assume, was the end of his ballet career in the that U.S.? That was it. Never, never turned back. Wow. Yeah. Did he, was he looking for, you talk about coming over here and um, spending the three weeks here in Kauai, and then the next year you actually were able to purchase the land. Was he actively looking for a place to build, he was, build a monastery? He, he was. He had been looking actively. Uh, in fact, that was one reason we went to Switzerland, because he, oh. thought, he thought Switzerland might be the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, he loved the idea of the, the Swiss neutrality and discipline and beauty of the place. Um, and then he thought, well, maybe it's in Hawaii. And he chose Hawaii primarily because his followers were half in the east and half in the west. Mm-hmm. So he had, he had people in Singapore, Malaysia, Mauritius, and India. And he had people in London and New York and San Francisco. So being in Hawaii was kind of halfway between all of them. 
Right. And it turned out well because in later life he could get on a plane and go east or get on a plane and go west and be with uh, his, his followers. Mm-hmm. When you originally purchased this in 1968, is that correct? We came here in 68. We actually purchased it in February of 70. By purchasing means sign the papers. Okay. <laughs> and how, how much how much land did you purchase at that time? No, no, we didn't purchase the, everything that we have now. So right now we have seventy acres here. That's fee simple. Uh, that first purchase was a little more than seven acres, mm-hmm. and uh, it was actually a great long story which I won't tell. Oh. But I I, I Do will tell. Please tell. <laughs> <laughs> It's a fun story. That's right. So this is relevant because it it also shows you a little bit about Gurudeva's nature. Uh, So we came back from the inner search around the world and and India uh, in uh, December of 69. And we were exhausted. We'd been on the road for three months with 65 people Mm -hmm. we had to feed and entertain and have classes and then get them on planes and on buses and on trains and all of that. And this was my, my sadhana, my discipline of, the, of my youth. <laughs> so we arrived, we were exhausted. There were 12 monks in 65 inner searchers. And Gurudeva said, before the monks go back to San Francisco Monastery, we should stop at that beautiful little island where we were a, few, a year ago, I guess, before, and rest for three days. So we checked in in Poipu and to rest. And Gurudeva said, well, let's go up and look at the tropical inn. I, I, it was a sweet place. So we came up here and then we went back to Poipu. And then Gurudeva turned to me at, in the hotel in Poipu and he said, uh, you know, you should go up to talk to the owner of the tropical inn and uh, See if he would sell it. Just like that? Just like that. Had no idea whether it was... And it wasn't on the market. Okay. <laughs> so my reaction was very normal, which was, Gurudeva, it's not even on the market. I mean, can you imagine going up to someone's house and knocking on the door and saying, <laughs> can I buy your house? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and that's how I felt. Right. I, was, I was really reluctant to do it. That's what he was asking you to do. <laughs> but he was asking me, and, and uh, he didn't... Uh, brook my objections at all <laughs> so i came up uh, drove you know what it is at 45 minutes from yeah. Poipu here right. knocked on the door i i knew the the manager mm-hmm. be, from our previous trip and uh, i said uh, colonel roche uh, grudeva whom you know and met wants to know if you would sell the tropical inn and he looked at me in this you know uh, as you might imagine, way, uh, like here I was, what, 20-some years old, and asking him if he'd sell his home and his livelihood to me. (laughs) So he said, no, uh, please go tell Gurudeva it's not for sale. So I drove back to Poipu, and I said, Gurudeva, Colonel Rose says it's not for sale. He said, okay. So drive back up there... (laughs) He, he doesn't stop. No. He knew something. He knew it. He knew something that I, I was not privy to, for sure. Drive back up there and tell him, uh, we know it's not for sale, 
but if it were for sale, how much would you want? So I drove back up He's here. He's a good businessman, isn't he? He, is. he was a Capricorn. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I drove back up here and knocked reluctantly on Colonel Roche's door, and I, I said what I just said to you, and he said, uh, it's not for sale, but I mean, I said, please give me a number. Because he's going number. to ask me. And all, I'm all, all I need is a number and you won't see me again kind of thing. Uh, I'll go back and tell him and we'll be done. So he said, well, uh, I don't know, uh, $300,000. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> I went, drove back to Poipu and told Gurudeva what he had said. And Gurudeva said, okay, go back to Colonel Roche and tell him that's too much. Tell him that all we can afford is to give him 165000 cash. Okay. So I drove the third time up the hill. And it's not on, for sale still. It's not for sale. <laughs> and I told Colonel Roche what Gurdeva had asked me. And Colonel Roche looked at me and he said, let me talk to my wife. No. And the next day, we agreed to buy it for $165,000. You can't buy a, a post box for that now. No, no. It, it's an amazing business deal. <laughs> I know when I read about Hinduism, there's a word that keeps coming to mind. It's vibration. There's a vibration here that is different than any place else. Is that what he was, was connecting? I think you have a good insight there, Denise, that he felt, he was an extremely sensitive, mystical fellow, mm -hmm. uh, and very attuned to energies and spiritual feelings and, as you say, vibrations. And he didn't know it at the time, and neither did I, but we subsequently found out that this land that we're on, this very parcel that you're sitting on, and that river and beautiful waterfall down below was sacred to the Hawaiians eight or nine hundred years ago and they have a name for it they call it Pihanakalani. Pihanakalani means in Hawaiian where heaven touches or impregnates the earth where heaven touches earth and that vibration goes back hundreds of years, almost a thousand years. And this was regarded by the Hawaiians who were here long before we even knew they were here as holy. And this was the only sacred river, the most sacred river in the state of Hawaii, the Wailua River. And to this day, there's uh, hula halaos on Kauai who train young women, mm -hmm. in, like teenage girls, in both the chants and in the hula. And there's one dance and one chant called Pihanakalani. And it's the whole story of this land and a, and a love gone wrong story where a, uh, a young man fell in love with a lihi girl who he couldn't marry. And, and it tore him up and he came here uh, to find solace 
on this land. And the story is all about him and that, uh, that thing. But today we try to honor that by inviting the Halals to come up and dance on the land, which is the story that they're telling in the dance. And they take great pride in doing that because usually they're doing that chant and that dance in an auditorium or in a competition. But to do it on the very land that like it was written for is a special privilege and we, we think that's really cool. When do they do that? Is it, is it yearly? They used to do it yearly. Uh, and we do it whenever they call. Uh, and it, it's probably every two years now, maybe. Mm-hmm. Something like I want that. to be here for that. Ooh, good. Is it open to the? It's not open. It's to not public. open to the public, no. but it's not closed to you. I mean, <laughs> you are goodness. average girls. Yeah, we so. are. That's true. Two average girls can come on there. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that invitation. We we don't know how to hula, but we love to watch. We it. love to watch. <laughs> oh, and they're good. They oh, are so they talented. Are. Yes. So so you started with seven acres. Now you've got much more. Seventy now. Seventy. Yeah. I read somewhere that there's 328 acres. Um. You read correctly. There's actually 383. Oh. There's 312 across the river mm. that's in an agricultural endowment where we grow um, mahogany trees and noni juice for our noni. And that's on a long-term lease, okay. like a 65-year lease. This land, this 70, is fee simple. What you, what you own. Yeah. What you own. Which brings us to another interesting point is that you grow a lot of your own food. Most of it, not all of it. Uh, but yeah, we probably grow 70% of what we eat, That's which isn't bad. Well, that's something within itself. Is That um, that must have been one of the reasons that this land was so attractive originally. Originally, that wasn't in our mind. Uh, but after we lived here a while and you know paid eight dollars for a tomato at Safeway, <laughs> uh, we learned the value of growing your own food. <laughs> mm-hmm. That brings us to something that you know you talked about having these pilgrimages where you traveled all around the world with sixty-five people. That costs money. Yes. How does a monk? Can you tell us how that's funded? or how we get to that place? Sure. We have several uh, revenue streams, let's call them, Mm -hmm. uh, in the monastery. Uh, One is our Himalayan Academy, which which runs the inner search study programs and also uh, publishes our books and our magazine and all of that. That's one. Then we have a, a church fellowship, which uh, we have members all over the world, not a lot of members, but they're all over the world, I think 60 countries. And uh, the initiated members all tithe, 10% of their income, like mm-hmm. the Mormons do. Yes. And uh, that tithe goes to su- support the monks here at the monastery. Then additionally, we have the temple project that we've been involved with for some 33 or five years and that is a, a donation based and it's that all goes to the temple and uh, Gurudeva was brilliant I mean if, it, if you want to know something marvelous uh, he, he can teach us it's how to take care of your money because 
for it's such a long story. I don't know. Oh, please uh, tell us. No, I can't. <laughs> I, can't <laughs> I can't tell you all the stories. But uh, as part of his decree in building this temple, he said, we're going to, for every dollar that we get in donations from all over the world, 50 cents will go into an endowment. It's the only endowment that we're aware of in the United States of America that the IRS has said that we can get tax deductions in America for gifts that we give to India or Mauritius outside mm. of the country. Wow. It's a, it's a, a rare uh, approval that they gave to this sure. project. So we've been following that for all these years. 50, 50 cents goes into the endowment. 50 cents goes to buy stone or pay salaries to the carvers or shipping or whatever the costs are. And so now, after all these years, we have some $9 million in an endowment and a $9 million temple. And, and that endowment will pay for the maintenance forever. Right. So monks of the future will never have to ask for a penny or a rupee. Right. <laughs> whatever it may <laughs> because, be. Or whatever it may be, because that's already been taken care of by this principle. And it was brilliant because when a project is underway and everyone's enthused about it and it's happening, and they, they eagerly want it to finish, they'll continue donating. But as soon as it's done, you know, People forget. We're, we're off to other projects sure. that are also inspiring. So he was wise to use the inspiration of those years and years of building to create the, the funds needed to take care of it forever. I think our audience and Denise and I would love to have you explain in as simple terms as, as possible, it may not be simple, what the tenets of Hinduism are. What do you believe? I think the simplest summary of that question, uh, it, it's, it's a vast question. Uh, Swami Vivekananda would say, the time is short and the subject is vast. <laughs> That's but, a good but I'm going to try to give you a, a soundbite answer to that. Okay. Uh, Hindus believe in karma and reincarnation. Hindus believe in uh, tolerance for all things. They don't believe that there's a one path or a one way on the earth. That They're accepting of all spiritual endeavors and paths and encouraging of them. And they never convert others to their beliefs. Uh, the Jewish faith is similar in being non-proselytizing. Hindus believe in the all pervasiveness of God, divinity, in all things, in all people, in every atom of the universe is holy to the Hindu. Hindus believe in God, in a, a real, aware, creator, preserver, destroyer God <laughs> mm -hmm. who who is created all of this magical, marvelous thing that we experience as life. And uh, Hindus believe that you are moving toward that God 
all of us, by you I mean all of us, mm -hmm. everyone without exception, and that the ultimate purpose of life is to realize God and be free, be liberated spiritually. Christian religions believe in a singular God as well as an adversary. What type of, is there something to account for that in Hinduism? Is there a single God? Let's start with that. Yes. Okay. Yes, there's a, there's a single God, divinity. In, in Hinduism, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but because India is so old and has had so many generations of religious expression and intervention and invention, uh, the name of God all over India it can be very different. And even the, the description of God can be different. But all Hindus know that if you call God Vishnu and I call God Shiva, we're talking about the same God. I'm, I'm looking at something that's in front of us. A and statue of uh, Sadashiva, the five-faced Shiva. Yes. Okay, so a Shiva, that is considered a god. The god. The god. This is the god. Yeah. And there is a large, and, and I'm trying to simplify it just so that everyone understands, but there's a large um, stone oxen or bull out there. Is what would what does that represent? There's a uh, thirty-two thousand pound black granite bull. I, he says it's so much better than <laughs> I do. Sitting true. in front of the Kadavul Temple, and he's on his knees, mm -hmm. and he's worshiping God. And the idea is that every one of the expressions of God in Hinduism has a. Uh, they call it a vahana, a vehicle that they ride on. So the goddess Devi rides on a lion, mm -hmm. and Vishnu rides on a Garuda, they call it, a bird, and Shiva rides on this bull. And uh, every, every form, every different form of Shiva has a different vahana, different mount. How many um, monks do you have living here? 20, I think, from six different countries. Oh. So how does one um, get placed here? Mankind, in my final judgment, is meant to live in the tropics. I think so. <laughs> I agree. I think so. I think that is the spiritual, that is where everyone spiritually needs and wants to be. Is it um, a matter of requesting the area, or is it something much more spiritual than that? It's a, a matter of evolution is the way I would look at it. Um, meaning, it, it, all the monks who are here, when they were young children, were different from all the young children around them. And they, they had different perceptions, different ideals, different experiences, different desires. And you have to kind of be born in a certain way to be a monk. Otherwise, a monk's life will be uh, too hard and, uh, and too 
solitary, let's call it, too remote from life, you know. Like I've never in my life been to a wedding. I've never been to a funeral, mm. except my guru's funeral. I've never been to, I've been to one cocktail party. <laughs> I've never been to a baseball game. And so there's a certain uh, restraint to a monk's life that you have to be born for to, to be happy in that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you'd, you'd have desires, unfulfilled desires, and you'd be looking over the fence and saying, oh, she's pretty, or whatever. Right. And uh, so a monk has to be evolutionary prepared, I would say. And then he has to come in our order. This doesn't apply to all <clears throat> Hindu monasteries, but in our order, he has to come uh, before age 25. And after 25, we don't accept a monk. And you said it's not in all orders, but in yours. Why is that age an important age? It was an age that Gurudeva chose where uh, a candidate is still malleable, still able to change and mold himself into who he will finally be as as a mature monk. If a young man has lived too much in the world, he's had 20 girlfriends, he's had three jobs, he's uh, gotten worldly, he's gotten, his habits have been set kind of in concrete, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, then he wants to be a monk, it's really hard for him to to change his ways uh, and adapt and and really mold himself. Gurdjieff said that, the concrete doesn't really get hard until after 25. And uh, so he chose that as a time when, and, and it's even better if they come in when they're 20, 19. Like there's a candidate over here on that wall, that computer. He's 22 and he wants to be a monk and he's uh, uh, done everything to qualify to be a monk. And so now he's here, he came here uh, for six months and lived with the monks, as, kind of as a trial mock monk, mock <laughs> trial, a trial period, a trial yeah. period to show him who we are and to show us who he is, and and he dis- then we sent him home to his family, so that his mom can trot out the pretty maidens and say, wouldn't you rather mm-hmm. is that what happens? Give me a grandchild <laughs> than, than go off and be a monk. And he decided that, no, he would rather come back. So he's already been home. He's been home, uh, and now he's back. uh, And he'll be training for two years, a little bit intensely. Mm -hmm. Uh, And after two years, if he still wants to follow this path, and we still feel he's capable of doing it, then he'll take some more serious vows. He's he's different in the sense that he's wearing clothes that are different color. You all wear the same orange, burnt orange type of clothing. He's wearing white. Is that to symbolize something for him? Yes. Uh, it's traditional in, in Hinduism. And if you go to India, uh, there'll be three colors. And we have three colors, actually, in the monastery. Mm-hmm. So the sadhakas, or the beginners, all start out in white. And they'll wear that until they get initiated. And then they'll wear yellow as a yogi. So we have two yogis here in the monastery. 
and you see them, they're in kind of a bright yellow vestments. And then after 12 years of training and initiation, then the vows are taken, lifetime vows are taken, at which time a monk, uh, give, if he has anything, which he probably doesn't by then, uh, he gives, gives everything away. I don't own anything in this world, not a penny. I don't own the robes that are on my back right now. Uh, I don't have any debt also. <laughs> <laughs> There's two sides to that coin. Yeah. Uh, so th- he takes, at 12 years, he takes that final step. And there's a, actually a ceremony, which may surprise you. So I've had my funeral ceremony already. When I took those vows, uh, they conducted a long, complicated rite for my funeral. Because it's regarded that my personality that had grown up in a certain place, in a certain family, went to a certain school, died. Mm. And it was spiritually reborn inside the monastery. And so for 57 years or whatever it is, I haven't spoken about my pre-monk life, not one syllable. So you don't... I may be the only person you've ever met who hasn't said a word about it where he was before. You literally are. You don't talk about your mom or dad or the life prior to you becoming who you are spiritually now. Right. And this young man that we're, that we're referring to, um, that is 22, he went home. And do you know how his family took it? Well, families are so different. You know, some, sure. some are, are very, very open. And, for some of the monks, like we have a monk from Singapore and a monk from Malaysia, their families were joyous because because, this because to them this was uh, something that gave honor to the family and to the tradition. And it was like in America, if a if a Catholic boy becomes a priest, you know, the family Is rejoices. Excited. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, it's a happy event. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's. Uh, families that don't have any background in Hinduism and they have a hard time understanding this principle. Right. <laughs> yes. And they they are on a steep learning curve that we try to help them with. In his case, most of his family is very happy because they also are spiritually inclined, but he has a little sister who adores him who who is not a happy camper at all because Cause she's going to miss him. Yes. So he would not see her again? Well, in our case, we, we do allow, because we're in the West and uh, in the Western culture, we wouldn't do this in India, but in the West, we allow families to come to Kauai and be with their son anytime they want for as long as they want. Even after they... Even after, like, like, like even my family could, could. could come. Interesting. And... Uh, that would give me some solace as a mother. Yeah, mm-hmm. of course. Because sure. it would be, I mean, I'm putting myself in that position, and that would be difficult. It's very difficult. And yes, it is very difficult. But the way I, I try to help loving mothers to get through it is that it's not so much that you've lost a son as you've gained 19. <laughs> <laughs> that, would, that would make me feel better, I have to say. I have to say. 
And why do we do that in yes, part? Yes, why do you yeah. do that? Because uh, most of us, I would say, have what I call a little wagon of me. Imagine a little red wagon, and it's got all of your history and your memories and everything about you right back to far as you can remember and we carry that little wagon wherever we go and then we meet someone and they say oh where did you go to college mm -hmm. oh you unpack the little wagon and you you give them a little story and uh, and you have brothers and sisters and what and we we affirm that past that history of ourselves again and again and again in life and by not affirming it a monk can stay in the now better mm. yeah. because he, he, he doesn't have to re repeat that the then and there of things. It's a really serious uh, enterprise that the monks here are undertaking. It's it, not for it's, the faint of heart. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for the, the weekender mm -hmm. uh, retreat mm -hmm. people. This, this is profound, deep, personal change and experience and it's hard hard work you mentioned that each one of the monks that are here had something in their lives as children or they realized that they were different from an early age i think all of those young boys and girls who are spiritually alive at an early age come at it because of previous births. That mm. so it's not something that just happens in this birth. In the way that Hindus look at it, every birth we become more and more refined, more and more knowledgeable, more and more loving. So we start out being crude and crass and instinctive and kind of animalistic and hurtful. And then we evolve over many lives and we get curious and intellectually adept and smart and thoughtful mm -hmm. and then we keep evolving and where we become compassionate and loving and understanding and full of light and everyone comes into birth with with this really nice baggage from previous births uh, which is all of the knowledge of your previous experiences so if you have a young person a young girl who's different and having you know meditative experiences when she's nine years old, part of that is because she went through everything else before she got here, mm -hmm. and now she's here for this. So when you look at somebody with, that's crass and negative and really struggling in life, are you thinking to yourself, "Wow, they haven't gone through enough rebirths to get out of that. They're, they still have Absolutely. a long way to go." Absolutely. In fact, it's it's. A, it gives a lot of uh, simpatico mm -hmm. because you can see someone who's who's acting in a way that's that's gross and, and you know unbecoming un, unbecoming and and unhappy and and you can say oh you're just a young soul or look at another person and and say oh you know he's He's an old soul, a mature soul. Look at the, the depth of that being and, you know. And so you can look at anybody and, and realize they're all on the same path. They're just at different levels of, uh, of maturity. Mm -hmm. 
The reincarnation part is fascinating. Can you be reincarnated many times? Yes. Yes. And do you have any recollection of that reincarnation? Or is it a belief that the person I am today is because of those past lives and you just take it at face value that that's what it is? Well, some people are naturally able to remember past lives. In fact, there's a, hmm. there's a whole world of study out there where at universities they've studied stories, anecdotal stories of like children. Uh, one that I remember is there was a little girl, I think she was eight, who, uh, this was in India, and uh, she kept talking about her, her husband and he lived in this village, and it was under a big uh, mango tree. And uh, so they took her to the village, and they t took her to the m mango tree, and she knew all about it. She could uh, identify, and she knew the name of her previous husband that lived in that village. And they, they were able to identify and, that. And they were able to identify that. And there's a, a lot of similar some of it's uh, hocus pocus, I would say, mm -hmm. frankly, but some of it's real. And the, the science of it, the study of it, is in its uh, infancy, I would say. Sure. Uh, but there's a lot of that study out there. And I, to answer your question, some people can naturally remember, especially when they're young. Mm -hmm. Gurudeva said that once, once someone reaches about six years old, the Memories of the past sort of uh, fall away or get uh, closed off. Mm -hmm. But up until then, uh, children are kind of open, and then we teach them not to. They'll say something, uh, and we say, oh, no, darling, that's not real. Right, that's you know, right. Are that. you making that up? You're making that up, right. aren't you? And so we teach them you know, where the boundaries are, and we close that off, which is fine, because in this life you don't have to know what happened in a pre previous life. That's right. Make your way through um, this particular monastery, and I don't know how it is for the other Hindu monasteries in the world. You're quite industrious here. Uh, like I said, you grow your own food. You are a professional horticulturist. You are in the science of growing things. It's amazing the plants that you have here. Anyone who even thinks about uh, maybe visiting this monastery just as a self-guided tour that you can take absolutely has to come see just the plants alone <laughs> it is remarkable it's unbelievable so not only is there plant life but there's also woodworking uh is it kumar that does that's the master yeah, woodworker yes. so there's all kinds of um industrious things going on that i don't want to say are hobbies because they're much more than that they're real accomplishments they're you've put the time and energy into these things and become expert at at the things that are happening at this monastery which at first pass you would never guess <laughs> it looks it's kind of a the humble monastery when you kind of come upon it but there's there's a lot going on here Talk a little bit about behind the curtain. That. Behind the curtain. We're behind sitting curtain. actually in, I would say this is the This is the conference room in the media center. But this is the hub of all of what's going on in the media center behind us is 
full of computers. There's more Apple products in that <laughs> room. <laughs> we're not sponsored by Apple, although we wouldn't. We but should if be. Apple's listening, we were, we're willing. I think that was one of the biggest surprises mm-hmm. when my husband and I first became acquainted with you, is how tech savvy this <laughs> entire group is, especially you. There's Amazon deliveries happening here <laughs> quite a bit, and and just really dialed into um, what's happening currently in technology, which is sort of at odds with your lifestyle. Well, the monks in uh, Europe are the ones who uh, invented printing, or some mm-hmm. people say China, but you know, Guggenheim did his uh, work. Uh, the monks uh, in Europe were the great master composers of music. They were the great writers of uh, philosophical terms. Uh, it's not unusual, I think, for monks to be accomplished. Uh, in part, the reasons you talked about earlier, and that uh, there's focus mm-hmm. and purpose that's undistracted by many things. You know, we're we're just torn apart by the demands of the outside world. I mean, I'm I'm so fortunate. Let me give you an example. Please. So this, this is my, my tribal anecdote. So the monastery is sort of like a little tribe. And in the tribe, uh, we all have different duties. So one group takes care of all the finances and business things. God bless them. <laughs> all right. One, one group does all the food raising and maintenance and uh, another group my group does all the publishing and web work and art work and translating and writing work and in that way we take off of our shoulders things so i don't have to ever write a check i don't have to ever reconcile a bank or fix a refrigerator or mow the lawn, or wash the car. I do have to wash my own laundry. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and that alone, you can imagine, because in a, in a nuclear family, you do all of those things. Right. You, you, are, you are everything. You, know, you do all the cleaning, and all the shopping, and all the finance work, and everything. And that is a very big overhead in life. And uh, so the, the monastery is, is a very unusual tribal mechanism for efficiency, yeah. <laughs> let's say, mm-hmm. and, and joy too, because everyone uh, can focus on what they do and do it really well, as you were saying. They don't, they don't have to multitask too much right how does one find what they are good at here Uh, for example the the young man we were talking about he is on the computer now when you have him here i would imagine maybe kumar wants him to be a woodworker do you take (laughs) them so that everyone has an opportunity to try what their their hand at something and and then whatever sticks is where they're placed or do you have the opportunity to move around and try different things you do have in the initial years, like the first 12 years, we, we try to do what, just exactly what you described, which is have a monk uh, learn many skills, work with 
all the brothers, uh, mm-hmm. not just get locked into being close to one or two. Uh, and ultimately in that process, the monk and, and those he works with will come to know what, what his destiny is, what his best service is. And he, he will know and we will know also. It, it's like you don't even have to talk about it. Uh, because it's so obvious. Right, <laughs> yes. This person can cook. Put this, him this in person. the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, Denise, you mentioned uh, Hanuman, our bronze statue out here, which is mm-hmm. the, the most beautiful monkey deity in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a 13-foot-tall bronze masterpiece uh, sitting on his little mountain. And uh, the way that he came to be on that little mountain tells, and it's a, a tale that uh, is worthy of sharing because it comes with a message, important message to me. So when Gurudeva was alive, uh, he had a vision of Hanuman. And in this vision, which was in his waking hours, he saw Hanuman uh, in his mind and uh, Hanuman was this very buff, muscular uh, deity, extremely strong. And, uh, and Gurudeva wanted us to honor that vision by making a stone statue of him here for, on the monastery property. So we went about doing that. We uh, commissioned a team in South India to carve and we told him what we wanted how we wanted and uh, so they carved this three men took uh, about seven years to carve this mm-hmm. black granite statue 13 feet tall it's beautiful like they, they created it and shipped it to Kauai and it was sitting out here he was laying on his back on a on a iron pallet that they had made and one day I went out to say good morning to Hanuman, and he had broken in two. Mm. So here we have a, a tremendous opportunity for loss and grief because this was a very expensive uh, artifact. Uh, it had taken talented men years and years and years to make and ship, and it, it, it was ruined. It was broken in half. So Gurudeva had a principle that he talked about to us whenever things went awry in life. And that was, if you respond with high consciousness to anything, you can make it a blessing in your life. Mm-hmm. Even something that seems like a disaster can become a blessing, maybe not immediately, but in time, if you react well with light, with understanding, with acceptance, with love. And so we said, well, okay, how are we going to make this disastrous, broken stone masterpiece a blessing in our life? And so we came to a conclusion and we flew Holly Young, who is a Big Island sculptress that did all of our shilpies that you saw on your visit, 
and we brought her here and she, we had her mold the stone that had broken in half and she made 65 molds and then we flew to Colorado and a team there spent 18 months uh, making a bronze copy of the broken stone. And the nice thing was that when Holly had it in wax, she was able to get in and do fine details that the stone carvers couldn't do with granite because granite's not so malleable as wax. And so we ended up with the most beautiful version of what had started out as a little bit of a crude stone statue to an amazingly refined bronze statue. And we celebrated formally that moment of disaster after Hanuman came here in his bronze incarnation. And we celebrated in order to prove to ourselves that we had achieved the goal. We were actually happy that it had broken. And so when we could be happy that a previous disaster had happened, we realized that we had achieved the goal. We had made a disaster into a boon and a blessing. And that's kind of the takeaway I wanted to share that no matter what happens in our life, uh, good, bad, neutral, but especially if, it's, if it seems awful, if it seems like a tragedy, if we work inside ourselves to face that so-called tragedy in a high way, high-minded way, a wholehearted way, we can, in time, get back a little gift card that says, what happened to you was a good thing. Polani, thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us today. It was a real honor to be up here, this beautiful Hindu monastery, as always. Uh, good vibes. We're, <sighs> we, this is, it's been such a great thing to be able to sit down with you. Thank you so much. We really appreciate my it. My great honor. It's and a, my first podcast. <laughs> you did. You did. We could talk to you for days. No, I mean, I, 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 am, I am just so grateful that you invited us and let us come to you. It was, like Anne said, an honor. Yeah. I'm Anne Police. And I'm Denise Cooper. We're two average girls. We'll see you next time. They're not average at all. <laughs>of two average girls are free wherever you get your podcasts be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button on the two average girls main page so you never have to go searching for new episodes our editor is aiden bloomstein our social media producer is samantha stone and original music for two average girls is by jason freeze